This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, o Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. So one of the great joys of my life was serving as a chaplain and religion teacher in a variety of Episcopal schools, and you've heard me talk about that from time to time. And I had the great privilege of teaching in schools from nursery school kids all the way up to senior high school students, and then of course later college and university. But of all the grades I have taught, I think fourth grade was my favorite, because at that age, kids have a delightful mix of curiosity and wonder that is not yet jaded by the cynicism of adolescence, nor overwhelmed by the hormonal rush of puberty. By the fourth grade, kids are smart enough to ask really searching questions, and they generally speak whatever is on their minds, which often leads to some refreshingly direct exchanges. <laughs> Susanna was one of the more precocious fourth graders I ever taught, and having been raised by parents who were quite committed atheists, she took special glee in asking me challenging questions during religion class. I will forever associate Susanna with today's love commandment from John's Gospel because of the tough cross-examination she gave me as I tried to explain this core concept of the Gospels. So there I was, standing at the front of the fourth grade class, beginning my lesson plan on the nature of Christian love. Perhaps the most important commandment Jesus ever gave, I said to the students, is the commandment that we love one another as he loves us. Immediately, Susanna's hand shot up. Yes, Susanna, do you have a question? Without missing a beat, Susanna launched into her challenge. I have a problem with that, she said. You can't make someone love you. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to command us to love. And then, with great passion in her voice, she clutched her hands over her heart with a dramatic intensity that only a nine-year-old girl can muster and said, love is something you either feel or you don't. You can't fake it. Now, Susanna would be right, of course, 
if the kind of love Jesus had in mind was romantic love. But in commanding us to love, Jesus is not referring to an emotional state or to the spark of desire that fuels attraction between people, or even to the mutual respect and admiration that marks classical friendship. Rather, the love Jesus points us to is the essentially divine activity of placing another's interests over our own and caring for the needs of the other as if they were our needs, what in the Greek is called agape. The key distinction that Susanna's questioning raises is the distinction between preferential love on the one hand and the selfless love of agape on the other. Now, whether we're conscious of it or not, and here Susanna is right, I think, preferential love is the love that animates most of our relationships most of the time. Our natural tendency is to be drawn to people because we like certain qualities about them, whether they be physical features, personality traits, intellect, humor, wit, or qualities of character. The people we love tend to be the people we prefer, either because we're attracted to some quality that they have or because, to be blunt, they can further or promote some interest of ours. Which is what makes Jesus' commandment to love so radical. Because the kind of love Jesus calls us to is not preferential love, but rather selfless love, which by its nature is indiscriminate. Thus, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, whomever he or she may be, to love even our enemies, and to love all such persons in the same manner as Christ has loved us. The Good Samaritan does not rush to the aid of only those persons with whom he has a preferred relationship. Indeed, the whole point of the parable is that he loves and cares for whomever is in need. But this presents us with a bit of a dilemma. Most of us, I suspect, would say that family and friends are among the most precious goods in human life. Am I right? We treasure our relationships with those people we hold close to our hearts, that circle of family and friends with whom we prefer to share our lives, to the exclusion, frankly, of others. There is nothing on this earth to be prized more than true friendship, Thomas Aquinas once said, echoing Aristotle. And yet, there is no question that in today's gospel and elsewhere, Christ calls us to love everyone without preference, and extravagantly so. So how do we reconcile, on a practical level, our desire to love only those people we like versus Christ's insistence that we love indiscriminately. The beginning to an answer to this conundrum is suggested in a famous exchange recounted in James Boswell's classic biography, The Life of Dr. Samuel Johnson. It is an exchange that occurred between Dr. Johnson and a woman named Mrs. Knowles. In a conversation about Christian love, Mrs. Knowles expressed the view 
that it is morally praiseworthy for Christians to cherish their family and friends. Now, ever one to like a debate, Dr. Johnson challenges her. Why, madam, how can that be when to love one's family and friends is preferring their interests to the neglect of another? Does not Christianity teach universal benevolence, that we are to treat our brothers and sisters equally well? And isn't that contrary to devoting oneself to family and friends? Pausing, Mrs. Knowles replies, yes, that is true, but it is also true that Jesus picked only 12 to be his disciples, and that of those, we are told that one was especially beloved. What does that tell you? Taken aback and uncharacteristically tongue-tied, Dr. Johnson responds, you have spoken well, madam. I had not thought of that. Mrs. Knowles is on to something. While the Gospels certainly teach unconditional and indiscriminate love of neighbor, these teachings must be read together with the many stories where we see Jesus expressing such love in the context of particular and very human relationships with the 12 disciples, with the beloved disciple of John's gospel, with the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, and with the small group of women disciples with whom Jesus has specific and different kinds of loving relationships, including, for example, weeping at the grave of Lazarus with Mary and Martha. Mrs. Knowles reminds us that, the, that Christ's love is not an abstract ethical system, but an incarnational reality embedded in the particularities of our given relationships. Mrs. Knowles' resolution of the tension between the universal and the particular dimensions of divine love is more formally explained by St. Augustine in his Confessions. Because we are finite human beings living at a particular place in time, Augustine observes, our opportunities to love are necessarily through the particular relationships of the family and friends we are given. These particular loves are the means God uses to lead his creatures toward a deeper love of him and, indeed, of all humanity. We cannot leap over particular preferential loves to a love more universal in scope. Indeed, to think we can is itself a form of hubris, Augustine insists, as if we could love just as God the Father loves. In this sense, our particular friendships and family relationships school us in the nature of love. They teach us about a love more universal and divine in scope. Our circle of family and friends are the school in which we learn what it would be like to love anyone, and in which, as we mature, we learn to become increasingly open and available to receive others in love. Importantly, Augustine writes, our particular loves are transcended, not destroyed, in the love of God. God uses particular relationships 
both to draw us more deeply into relationship with him and then to return us to the delight of loving our particular friends. But at the same time, we are constantly beckoned to enlarge our circle of loving, pushing past the contented exclusivity of preferential love in a continuing effort to draw everyone into God's love and to eradicate the barriers of gender and race and class and economics and other socially constructed systems we humans inevitably erect in our sinful attempts to contain and limit that divine love that in fact knows no boundaries and whose nature is generative and always inclusive. To put it simply, by all means, love your family, love your friends, and love all those persons you prefer to love. For as Susanna reminds us, such loves are beautiful things. But for Christ's sake, do not stop there. For the love that Jesus commands is a love that insists we go beyond ourselves, beyond our selfish desires and wants, and beyond our own misguided judgments of who is worthy of our love. For Christ's love is a love that is relentlessly unconditional in its pursuit of others to love. And if you do that, you might just be surprised, like I have been. For one of the strangely delightful things God does from time to time is that he gives us new people to love, people whom we may never otherwise have even met. And so here I find myself in a state far from my home, presented with people from a different tribe, only to discover that I am in love with them. So much so that I now find it difficult to say goodbye. But then I remind myself that nothing is ever wasted in God's divine economy of love, such that every single moment Every single moment that we spend loving each other is forever preserved in the memory of God and becomes one more link in God's ever-widening circle of love. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.